If you would stand with me, please, and I will read Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, and I want you to listen, these next couple verses, listen to the personal first-person pronouns. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gather around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, and notice how the pronouns change. Oh, my God, I am ashamed. And blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments." which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. 
Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. That is a light in the midst of darkness. That is truth. In a land of lies. That is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you, Father, for giving it to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. The reality is God has been so, so good to us. He has been so good to us. He's been good to us as a church. Again, we we come into a a church plant with all kinds, all kinds of questions. Lots of questions. Many unknowns. But yet God continues to answer those questions and continues to give us direction. You know, he's given us a a wonderful building. You know, we've been praying about and we've been encouraging one another to pray about a, a permanent location. But the reality is we have been blessed with a wonderful, wonderful location. And then I think about the people, you know, the people that are here. And and uh, sometimes I think about um, the people that we have met because of of this church. And uh, and sometimes I think, you know, how tragic would it have been for to, to not get to know some of you the way that we've gotten to know some of you or to know you much better than what we knew before, because we are family now. And what a blessing and how good God has been to us. To bring us together. But yet he's also been very good to us. He's been very good to us individually. You know, he has given us salvation. Salvation. You know, we, we, we live in a world that we see as decaying, as falling apart, and a world that has no hope. And, and God has given us salvation that is free. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to go out and buy it. He offers it to us as a gift, as as as, as Ray um, just shared with us from Romans. It's a it's a it's a gift. And we from that gift, we do have hope and that hope does give us a tremendous future. Again, just imagine being where you sit today and not know what happened beyond death. God has answered that. He's defeated that enemy. He set it aside and he's given us tremendous hope, but he's also given us tremendous purpose, right? In, in, in our present, we have a tremendous purpose of why we are here. What are we to be doing? God has made that very clear. We are here to glorify him. We have purpose. We don't need to ask what, 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 why am I here? And what is my purpose? And what is my value? God has answered those questions for us. So imagine this morning, if we had a daughter, and I like to use my daughter as an example because I don't have one. 
But let's say that I, we, we had a daughter who wanted to be a missionary. And, and you guys were all involved and, and we were raising all kinds of support to send our daughter to Africa. So you're sacrificing, you're giving of your time, your energy, your monies to, to, to our daughter so that our daughter could go to Africa. And the day comes and we, we send her off with a great celebration. She goes to Africa and a month later you find out she meets a Muslim man and she marries him. What would you think about that? And what would your response be? And what do you think God's response would be? Because that, that's what's happening here in our text. You, you look at our text in verses one, beginning of verse 1. After these things had been done. Just think about what things had been done. God had stirred the heart of pagan kings and released His people so that they could go back to Jerusalem, so that they could leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And God had provided that and allowed that to happen. He'd equipped them. He enabled them to go. He delivers them. Basically, no accord of their own. God paves the way for them. They go back and what do they do? They intermingle with the people of the land. And they intermarry and basically buy into the religions of the land. And as distraught as you would be over our daughter, imagine how distraught the Lord would be and how the Lord is. What follows in verses 1 and 2 is the description of a faithless people. The description of a faithless people. The word faithless is used, or faithlessness is used in the last sentence of verse 2. Some of your translations, in fact, your New King James, that refers to it as the trespass of the people. And the New Living talks about the outrage. The outrage. Can you imagine the outrage that we would have with our daughter who went to Africa as a missionary for Jesus Christ and find that she would marry a Muslim man and take on his religion? We'd be distraught. We'd be outraged. We'd be appalled. We'd be shocked. There's three things here that really kind of describe or give us this description of a faithless people here. Number one, they did not live any different. They did not live any different from the people of the land. You look at the accusation here in verse one. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. They were just like them. If you showed up and you looked at how they were living their lives and the values and the priorities they had in their lives, you couldn't, you couldn't distinguish them. You couldn't tell that they had just been delivered by the Lord. You couldn't tell that they were the Lord's people. The second thing is, is they were partnering with the people of the land. They were partnering with the people of the land. Again, verse 2 says, because they had taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, the holy race, just hang on to those, that phrase there. Some of your translations may say holy seed, but holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Again, they were partnering with the people of the land. 
It's important that we understand, and it's fleshed out even in more detail later in the chapter, we're not talking about ethnicity here. The issue is not mixing ethnicities. The issue was mixing religion, mixing worship. And the reality is, you know, we live, we live in a country that is kind of hard sometimes for us to understand that our culture worships all kinds of idols as well. Okay? Every person is a worshiper. Whether they want to acknowledge it or not, every person worships something or someone. Everyone does. They can proclaim to be an atheist. They can proclaim to to not believe in a God. But every person worships, values, exalts, lives for someone, something. Everyone does. The third thing that's here is they were not being properly led. The tragedy that you see here is that the hands of the officials and the chief men had been foremost. The leaders were just as unfaithful as anyone. But what we need to understand as we stand here this morning and we look back in time to to a real time in, in Ezra 9, that this is a pattern that gets repeated throughout Scripture. The Lord delivers a people. That's what he does first. He delivers a people and then he sends those people out to be witnesses to the rest of the world. He delivers them in order for those people to go out and to be his special treasure, his special possession, to live apart from the world so that the world can see his people and see that there is something different. And inquire about their God. You see it there in Exodus 19, verses 4 and 6. It's there in your outlines. Where the Lord had said and told the people as they had just left Egypt and were now standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So the Lord has acted, He has delivered. Verse 5, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they were to be a people who were set apart, set apart unto the Lord. And and, and, and you go back and and you read through the Old Testament and and it's very clear, the Lord desired to deliver a people so that that people could again point the rest of the world to the true living God. So they were a holy nation. Or they were a holy race. Or they were a holy seed. As verse 2 would refer to in chapter 9 of Ezra. That's what he's talking about. You're mixing up the nation. You're mixing up the fact that you're to be distinct. You're to be different. You're, you're, you're compromising this witness Again, this is a pattern throughout. We see it in the Exodus out of Egypt. We've seen it, we're seeing it now with the Exodus out of Babylon to Jerusalem here in Ezra. But you're also going to see it in 1 Peter 2. Dave, can you show us this next slide? You can turn if you want. If not, it's up on your screen. Where Peter reminds us that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
A people for His own possession. Why? Why have we been delivered? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness, out of captivity, out of slavery, into His marvelous light. Look at this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, it's the same thing as the people who were born in Egypt in all those years, and they were born into captivity. God had brought them out. God had delivered them out of darkness into light. He had set them free. Why? To be a treasured possession, to be a holy nation. To basically proclaim again the excellencies of our Lord. But look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul. So Peter referring to us here also as sojourners and exiles. Do you see how this pattern just gets repeated throughout Scripture? God delivering out of Egypt. A a people to, to, again, be a light and a witness to the world. Again, God delivering out of Babylon to have His temple rebuilt in Jerusalem to, again, restore that light for the world. And here we have in Peter being reminded that we too have been delivered and called out of darkness. And yeah, we too are still sojourners. We too are still exiles. We too have not yet reached the promised land. But we have a job to do. We have a responsibility. We we are a holy race, a holy seed, a holy nation. We should be set apart and distinct from the peoples of the lands. J.I. Packer says it well here. I think that captures it. The body of Christ, called under the leadership of Jesus, its head, are to permeate and purify society and inject God's values, which are the true human values, into its life. Christ wills, therefore, to transform culture through the church's agency. And we do that by revealing Jesus. But we can't do that when we are no different from the people of the land. So again, the people of the Lord are to live distinctly from the people of the land. That's that's the whole point here. That's the underlying premise. So the question here would be, where might loyalty to the passions of your flesh, the culture, and the people of the land cause you to be faithless to the Lord? Again, as as I was studying this text this week, that word just kept jumping off the text for me, at least from my ESV text. And this reference of when we live like the people of the land, the Lord would look at this, according to the last line of verse 2, as faithlessness to himself. Or as a trespass against himself. Or it's something that would be considered an outrage. An outrage. And we can hear the tractors getting fired up, right? (laughs) So might there be areas and times when we live no different than the world? How we spend our time? How we spend our energy? You know, it's getting to be less and less popular to set aside 
time a week for us to gather together. Our culture begins to crowd out this time with all kinds of conflicts and activities. How we sacrifice to serve others. Are we distinct from the world and how we sacrifice ourselves in order to love and serve one another? How about how we respond to injustice? Are we distinct? Are we different from the world and how we respond when we're treated unfairly? How about how we treat or handle our enemies? How we talk about the news or world leaders or world events? How about our response to sin? Because that's where we go next. In verses 3 through 6, we find the response of a broken leader. The response of a broken leader. Again, I I ask you when I read through it to pay attention to the first um, person pronouns. And and in these basically three verses, 3, 4, and 5, you're going to find 13 references and three verses to I and my. Okay? And what we see here is Ezra is personally astonished or appalled by their sin. He's utterly shocked. He says in verse 3, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard. And I think that would probably hurt. But just think about that. Think about that response to their sin, to this news. Dale Ralph Davis, I love to read anything he writes, but he has said, We usually cannot understand a genuinely holy reaction to sin. As for example, the violence and intensity of Ezra's response here in verse 3. Do we understand this response? Do we understand why Ezra would pull his hair out of his head and grab hold of his hairs on his beard and yank him out and rip his clothes? Do Do we understand why he would act like that? Is he over the top? Or does this say more about us than about anything else? Down below, I ask this question, how do we respond to the sins of others? How do we respond to to sin in general? Do we see sin as God sees sin? Is Ezra out of control here? Or we have a very softened stance to sin. And the reality is, if sin is not a big deal to us, then we too are probably likely to compromise when faced with great temptation. When we cannot see sin the way that God sees sin, then we too are going to compromise when the people of the land begin to apply pressure. And again, you just just see this response in verse 3, and you see this response in verse 5, and you think, wow, is that our response to sin? Do we see sin like this? We're told in verse 4 that all who tremble at the word of God join him. All who tremble at the word of God. Do we tremble at the word of God today? Are we in awe of the word of God? Do we have a tremendous reverence? For the word of God, do we invest our time and in turn, do we invest our lives in this word of God? 
Because those who tremble at the word of God join Ezra. And number three, they're shocked. They're shocked. And I find it interesting how, how Ezra refers to the people here. They were shocked by the faithlessness of the returned exiles. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say of, the, of these people who are intermarrying or, or the, the people who had come to, to Jerusalem. He's shocked by the faithlessness of the returned exiles because that phrase, the returned exiles, captures a lot, doesn't it? Why were they in exile to begin with? For doing similar things. You go back and read in 1st 2nd Chronicles, 1st 2nd Kings. How did they even return? Because God in His tremendous grace and mercy enabled them to return. And this is what He gets. Faithlessness in return. They're shocked. They're appalled. They're astonished. But what Ezra does here is Ezra took the problem to the Lord. And this is, this is a crucial turn. He takes the problem to the Lord. I think we often struggle because we often have our eyes on people. Ezra clearly lifts his eyes to the Lord in this. And he takes this sin before the Lord. And this is crucial. Do we find it as an opportunity to exalt self above others when we hear of sin? Well, I would never do that. I can't believe they did that. Did you hear what they did? Do we take opportunities when we hear about sin to exalt self above others? Or to humble self before the Lord? We could go one of two directions when we hear about sin. Ezra, when he heard about the sin of the people, it humbled him before the Lord. He took it before the Lord and it humbled him. He didn't take it before man and exalt himself. It humbled him before the Lord. There's several things at stake here. I think when we take it to man instead of to the Lord, and that's the ability to see our own blind spots when we exalt self, our own spiritual growth. We don't grow when we're, when we're exalting ourselves above others. And it also completely destroys unity in our homes, in our marriages, in our church. And I'll come back to that. So what Ezra does in response to verses 6 through 15 is he has this prayer and we find the prayer of a humble man. The prayer of a humble man. Because again, as I asked, you know, I asked you to, to focus on how these pronouns change. He's personally appalled. He's personally shocked. But what he does in response is he turns to the reality of us and we. In fact, in these 10 verses, 6 through 15, our O-U-R, our, and we, and us, is mentioned 40 times in 10 verses. Don't miss Ezra's emphasis here. And that emphasis is this, number one. Recognize our identity, your identity, my identity. Recognize our identity lies with faithless people. And not with a holy God. 
how easy it is sometimes when we hear the sins of others to separate ourselves from them as if that was something that we would never do or never think of or do something similar as. When we separate ourselves from that, who are we setting ourselves up with? A holy God who doesn't do anything like that. Ezra identifies himself very clearly here with this faithless people. We, our us. In fact, he says there in the beginning of verse 6, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. He basically starts off this pray, prayer is with this, I am unworthy. I am unworthy. Ezra doesn't run to people to talk about people. Ezra doesn't look to the Lord and say, Lord, do you see these people? Ezra sees their sin, goes to the Lord and says, you know, I'm even ashamed to come before you. And I blush at the thought of it and the reality of it. I am unworthy. It's an interesting place to start, isn't it? With other people's sin. latter half he says our iniquities have risen higher than our heads when your iniquities are higher than our heads what's happening we're drowning in our sin we're drowning in our sin Ezra may not have gone out and intermarried with the people of the lands but he recognizes you know we're kind of all in this together and we're drowning in our sin latter half of verse 6 Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Our guilt knocks on heaven's door. Do you think heaven is aware of our guilt? Ezra said, yeah, because it's mounting up to the heavens. We We can't hide this. In verse 7, it's interesting what Ezra says here. And for our iniquities, we, again, he doesn't separate himself at all. For our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands. And look at this. To the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame. As it is today. He knows the price of our sin. We know the price of our sin. You know, as Christians, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ to bear the wrath of our sin, as was talked about earlier, you know, we we, we shouldn't go around as Christians carrying guilt of our past when God has taken that guilt and placed that on Jesus. However, I do believe that we can be helped by the memory of sin in our past. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the sin in our past ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. And it also ought to remind us the sin in my past, the sin in your past, the memory of it ought to remind us that sin is costly. The guilt 
the shame Jesus bore for us, but the memory. I think there's some redeeming quality in a memory. Being humbled by it. But also being reminded sin is costly. Sin is costly. And that's what Ezra is pointing out here for us. So the first thing, again, that that Ezra does is he recognizes his identity with faithless people. The second thing he does is he moves on in verse 8 to reflect on God's kindness to us. Reflect on God's kindness to us in spite of us. He talks about in verse 8 how the Lord has indeed shown us favor. And also in verse 8 how the Lord has not wiped us out yet. In fact, he has left us a remnant. And Ezra is praising God for the remnant. We are a people who are increasingly becoming the minority in our culture and our society. You look at the picture, you look at the providence of God, you look at Ezra, you ought to celebrate the fact that we have a remnant. We shouldn't bemoan or begrudge the fact that we're becoming far and few between. We ought to praise God. He hasn't stomped us out. Because the fact of a remnant is really the result of judgment. And I believe our country is under a lot of judgment right now. Our world is certainly under judgment. The church is being squeezed. The people of the Lord are being squeezed. And we have a remnant. Ezra praises God for that remnant. Because he says, you know what, we, we, really, we really don't even deserve to be a remnant. We should have been extinguished. But see, the Lord has, has given us favor in, in spite of this. The Lord has provided us new life and hope. New life and hope. He says our God brightens our eyes and grants us a little reviving in our slavery. These people, they're still, they're still underneath Persian rule. They're still not free to go out and do as they please, but they're a lot freer than what they were in Babylon. They're back in Jerusalem. They're able to build the temple. They're able to assemble. But yet they're still dealing with the effect of a foreign power. But God in His grace and in His kindness, even though they're they're under the weight of that foreign power, under some control of the foreign power, the Lord Himself revives them a little. Gives them hope. Gives them life. Is He not doing the same with us still today? Are we not under a foreign influence, a foreign control? Do we not long for freedom in this world? And has not God given us favor and granted us and revived us a little in the midst of our slavery that we might have hope? We are slaves, He says in verse 9. We are slaves. But look, Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He's not abandoned us. He's not walked away from us. Could He have? Yeah, He could have. But He hasn't. He hasn't. The fact the Lord has extended His steadfast love to us. 
So again, Ezra identifies with the faithless people. And then he he focuses on God's kindness to us in spite of us. And then, verses 10 through 12, he confesses sin. God may not have abandoned us or forsaken us in our slavery. But look at verse 10. We have forsaken him by not obeying his commandments. In effect, he's saying we have spurned this kindness. God has granted us so much kindness, so much favor, but we've spurned it. We've forsaken his commands because we were warned. We were warned. He told us the land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands. With their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Can the same thing be said of our land? Is not our land filled with all kinds of impurities? Has not the Bible warned us also? Not to, not to partnership, not to have fellowship. With those who are not of the Lord. Not to be equally or unequally yoked with them. Is not our land like this land? Have we not been warned to be set apart? Are we not told that we're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession? Are we not told the same? We've been warned. And again, you know, just to go through here, do not partner with the people of the land. You know, in verse 12 is an interesting statement. Never seek their peace or prosperity. Just think about that. Never seek their peace or prosperity. What? What's the direction here? Why? We, we should never compromise with this world. We should never compromise with the people of the land. Do not seek the world's approval. Do not seek the world's acceptance. Do not seek peace on their terms. Our loyalty is with the Lord. But also, again, do not seek their prosperity. Do not pursue what they pursue. Again, part of our distinctiveness should be a different definition for prosperity. What does it mean to be prosperous in this life? That should mean something very different for us in this room than for everyone outside this room. How do we define what it means to be prosperous? Because the reality is we're running a different race. We should be running a different race. We have a different finish line. We have different goals. And that should make us very distinct from the world. And then we're told in verse 12 of the way to blessing. We were told the way to blessing. We want to be blessed. We want to live right before the Lord. He tells us here. Be separate from the world. You're not running a sprint. You're running a marathon. A marathon that will impact the generation to come.
So after confessing sin, number four, verses 13 through 14, Ezra enters into contemplating, encouraging us also to compliment or to contemplate what we deserve from the Lord. Contemplate what we deserve from the Lord. Again, Ray read for us uh, Romans 3, 22 through 25, talking about how in God's divine forbearance, the Lord withheld. He withheld. He didn't give them what they deserve. We have not yet received what we deserve. He has withheld. That will come later and it will come. But God in His kindness and His mercy withholds what we deserve for a season. Ezra says, our God punished us less, in verse 13, He punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Praise God, Ezra says, for what we have because we deserve far less. So has he not been withholding what we deserve as well? And then Ezra kind of asked this question in verse 14. Shall we continue to mock his mercy? Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Shall we continue to mock your mercy that you've had towards us? The favor you've granted to us, the patience that you've displayed to us? Shall we continue to mock this and go our own way? Would it not be right for the Lord to destroy us? To a certain extent, I think Ezra here is somewhat amazed at God. That he is showing so much constraint. Do we show as much constraint with one another as what the Lord has shown to us? Number five, know that we are in the hands of a God who is just. Verse 15 says, O oh Lord, I mean, after, after this, after Ezra identifies, again, he identifies with faithless people. He reflects on God's kindness in spite of us. He confesses his sin. He contemplates that we haven't really gotten what we deserve from the Lord. We deserve much greater judgment. And then verse 15, you are just, for we are left the remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, look at that last line. We are before you in our guilt. Ezra is not about them and me. Our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. None can stand before you because of this. Again, we need to know that we're in the hands of God who is just. And because of our guilt, we cannot stand before him. Hence, my challenge really for this chapter, remember who can stand. Who can stand? Can you stand before the Lord on your own merit? It's actually a question that gets raised throughout Scripture. Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? 
This is the one who can stand. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You have clean hands and a pure heart this morning. Raise your hand. We're going to need someone with a clean, with a pure heart and clean hands, aren't we? Someone that come and stand in His holy place for us. Psalm 131 through 3. Out of the depths, He says, I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Again, I... I love that verse. Every time I read that verse, I'm reminded. What is the one thing that we ought to always pray for? Mercy. 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 Because we need mercy more than anything else in life. We need mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who can stand? Malachi 3.2 But who can endure the day of His coming? And He is coming. Who can endure that day? Who can stand when He appears? I want you to turn now to Revelation chapter 6. And again, I told you that these themes carry throughout Scripture. And they carry into Revelation as well. It is my plan to to start working through Revelation probably after Labor Day. Um, Because I I think we definitely need to. But I hope I don't disappoint anyone by saying this. Revelation glorifies Jesus Christ. It's not about charts and maps. It's about Jesus Christ. And I'm excited to be exalting Jesus Christ out of Revelation. But but Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Look at this verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. We're going to get what we deserve. And who can stand? Who can stand? When the God of justice comes, who can stand? You go into chapter 7. Much has been said about this as far as the 144,000. It's really John's way of capturing the angel revealing the revelation of Jesus, capturing how the the, the people of the Lord are being assembled in a way to reflect with with the numbers, the tribe of Israel, the church. Verse nine. After this, I looked and behold, a reflection back in the verses before it, a great multitude that no one could number. 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord, or to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? Do you know who these white robes are? You go back up in verse um, 9. These in white robes are the ones standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come? Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the ones that are coming. The words coming is a present reality, a present ongoing action. He's not saying these are the ones who will come. These are the ones that are coming. It's very distinct, very direct. And John is telling us here, as John speaks to the early seven churches, that people that are coming out of the tribulation, people coming out of this life, people coming out of among the peoples of this land, people that have separated themselves from this world, and it's not easy, it is hard. The people coming out of this great tribulation are the ones who will stand before the throne. Why? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a present reality. It was present in John's day. It's present in our day. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And the only reason they can stand is they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how any one of us is going to be able to stand before the Lord. Not on your merit. Not on my merit but on what Jesus Christ has done for you and what Jesus Christ has done for me, period. That's it. So tonight, we're going to baptize seven people. Seven people that want to go public and say, I want to proclaim publicly by baptism, obedience to the command of the Lord. I want to set myself apart from the world. I want to be different from the people of the land. And seven people are going to be baptized. And again, their hope is not in themselves or in how good they are or in their past. But because they've washed. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So what's at stake in this? Again, to go back to the bottom of that that first part of that page or that column. You know, when, when we set our eyes on the Lord instead of on people, when we see sin, it, it allows us to see our own blind spots. Again, Ezra was told the people of the land are intermarrying. The people of the land are just like the, or the, the people of the Lord are just like the people of the land. And Ezra was broken by that. Ezra didn't separate himself from that. He says, you know, I, I identify with the faithless people too. And he goes to the Lord as we, our, and us. And when we have our eyes on people, we we tend to exalt ourselves and judge ourselves according to one another. Ezra reminds us here this morning, we need to take ourselves before the Lord. Who are we? Who are we before the Lord? 
Lord, help me see my blind spots. Lord, help me to see my sin in your eyes. As I see the sins in others, it reminds me how horrendous this is. I can only imagine how horrendous my sin would be, Lord, to you. What's also at stake is our own spiritual growth. Only when we acknowledge our sin, only when we confess our sin, can we truly be forgiven, cleansed, and changed. When we constantly have our eyes on others, that does not happen. We ought to see the sins in others and say, you know, that tendency probably lies in my heart too. Where, Lord, help me to see it. Help me to confess it. Help me to change from it. What's also at stake is our unity. Our unity is we stand together before the throne of God, not based on what you have done or what I have done, but because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. That's our unity. That's our unity. And when we start distinguishing one another because of sins of others or what one has done or one has not done, we destroy that unity. And we quite frankly deny the reality that we need the blood of Jesus. So at the throne of God, we all look the same. We're all covered in blood. <laughs> His blood. We, we should never forget that. We should never forget that. And then lastly, our witness. That's also what's at stake. Our witness. We should be a very broken, humble people, especially when it comes to the sin of our land and what the people of our land are doing. We need to see sin as God sees sin. And may it break us and humble us. And may our world begin to see us as a people who's God's treasured possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies who called us, called us who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. May I be a witness that proclaims God to my world, to my community, to my family, to my church. But that's what's at stake. So we need to remember who can stand. Really, in the answer, Jesus can stand. And by the blood of Jesus, I can stand too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us and for your tremendous mercy that you have shown us and you show us even today the restraint. And I pray, Lord, that we would not take sin lightly, that we would not look upon your patience as if you are indifferent to sin, but we would look at your patience as being mercy and grace for us. Lord, reveal to us where we have become complacent to sin. Reveal to us where we have bought into the world. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are holy and that are separate to you. Help us live lives, Lord, that are running a different race as we seek to glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us when we at many times have been faithless to you.
Forgive us, humble us, and help us to proclaim your excellencies. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.